Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And Michael, what did you cook? Uh, we did beef tenderloin with a horseradish cream sauce and right. just some salad. Okay, and I had uh, leftover turkey for the 19th straight day. <laughs> and what sauce did you use? <laughs> you know, we use, actually used the peppercorn sauce that you and how gave old, us. And how old is the peppercorn sauce? Not as old as I am. <laughs> this is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser. I finished the peppercorn sauce last night. Used it one more time on leftover steak. It was very good. No ill effects? No ill effects. Well, not yet. No, (laughs) you know, no particular ill effects. No, we're doing something different today. Um, We may have lost Jean because she can't put her headphones on. I'm left-handed. She's struggling with her headphones. So we have Jeannie today and we have Liz today. And we're going to do something a little bit different, sort of old and traditional. And one of the reasons why is because I want to have Jean and Liz here and do the show, but the second reason is to be quite honest. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about four stupid bowl games that happened last <laughs> night and nothing else. I'm not going to do it. I mean, this is a junk week, let's be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, Friday would be our, our football show, and so you know, this was a perfect opportunity to sort of change the rhythm of the show and do a bunch of things that we used to do and that I really enjoy doing because it, it got me to cut out stories from the paper and things that I thought we could talk about without being overwhelmed with sports. Now, we are going to talk at some length about the Washington football team later in the show, but we're not going to open with that because Liz has spent a good portion of her life. I'm just going to say. best year. Yeah. <laughs> a good portion of her life. Gone. Um, and it's sort of like, it's sort of like watching construction on a highway that never really gets done. And it just goes, you know, that day they did this piece, but it didn't really get done. But it's, we'll talk about it's that. It's like the purple line. Yeah. Just, you know, we'll There's talk about it down the road. The first thing I thought we would talk about, I mean, it is Christmas to New Year's week. When you were young, did you... When you were young, do you remember this as a family vacation week? I never had family vacation, which is why I never took my kids on family vacation. I never had it. Well, vacation, we were off from school. Yeah. So, so did you go somewhere? No. Oh, you didn't? No. Big Catholic families didn't go anyplace. There were too many in the car? They in the car. You <laughs> couldn't go anyplace. Yeah. And besides, it, it was a somewhat holy aspect to it. Right. You know, there was lots of religious services that were part of that week. Um, well, you freed that. You freed up that for this week, haven't you? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Wipe that slate right clean. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, we kind of liked being home and out of school. I mean, there was generally some sort of homework. But no cruise, no carnival cruise, no Tony, vacation. Here's the thing. About, we didn't go to the beach at Thanksgiving. Yeah. We didn't go away at Christmas. Okay, we didn't go to summer camp. We could sleep in overcrowded rooms with a lot of kids and stay home. We didn't have to pay to go to camp. I always envied. um, I got to camp on a scholarship because my aunt and uncle owned the camp. But I always envied people who went away between Christmas and New Year's because I never did. I mean, I take that back. When I was a senior in high school, I drove down to Miami with two other guys, uh, Charlie Weinstein and Robert Dichter drove to Miami from Long Island in a Corvette with luggage. Oh so you can imagine God. how much luggage That's we had. We had no luggage. <laughs> we had like an overnight bag. So the three of you in the front? Or was no, there a you, little jump seat? The jump seat in the back. Yeah, okay. Jump seat in the back. And because I didn't have a license and wasn't allowed to drive, I was in the back the whole way. 
and I was scrunched up, which is why my back, why I need a back <laughs> operation today from 60 years ago. Liz, did you go anywhere? Oh, good God, no. No. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, we were middle class. We we took an annual vacation, but it was in the summer to the beach. Oh, and then in October, we'd often take like a Shenandoah drive, you know, overnight To vacation. see the leaves. To see the leaves and like ride a pony or a horse, you know, when I was little. So exciting. But no, I mean, I I have fond memories of that week between Christmas and New Year's because you'd play with the what you got for Christmas, right. you know, whether it was like a bike or a game or, you know, I never got, never got the two things I most wanted, which was a pony and, um, and, and a private a, jet. No, a drum set, a drum set. Which, yeah. I just, you could have joined the bangles. Yeah, I could have. <laughs> um, but no, the, my, my musical career was stunted right there. Um, but no, I, I, I wonder just why loved... your family didn't want a drum set. In the can house. you imagine? I or imagine. the pony, like they would be so welcome. Um, <laughs> but no, it was just, you know, not being in school, but I mean, later in life, you know, I, I went to NCS, which was, um, super rigorous and, you know, a little wealthier group of classmates than, than I was from. And I do remember when we'd return from, you know, the winter break, uh, most of the girls would have like little ski tags on their jackets, yeah. you know, like Aspen and Vail and, you know, lots of people in my cohort would go, would go for ski, winter skiing, but that was not in, in our family's uh, repertoire. I never went skiing in my life. Never. To never this been, day? No, I've never been skiing in my life. I'm not going to at this point. No, no, um, no, not good. I always sort of envy people, and I know exactly what you're talking about. They come back with those tags. Yeah, the tags. Um, from Killian or whatever those places Kill- Killington. were. Killington. Killington in Vermont. Because yeah, right. you lived in Vermont, so right. you know all these yeah, places. Yeah, I was just keep yeah. them. I had great envy uh, of that. I never did it. I was always so happy, because obviously I am on the other side of the street, but I always was so happy being a sports writer, being able to work. Being able to work between Christmas and New Year's, being able to work both holidays Mm -hmm. and saying to people who were particularly religious, I'll work for you. Go ahead. Take it off. You know, take Christmas Day off. Have a great time. And then there were there was college basketball. When I got to Newsday, there was always stuff to do that week. And that made me very happy because I didn't want I, I didn't want to have the days off. I didn't want them at all. Interesting. But I remember as a as a kid. No, never. Never going anywhere. And yeah, and having that kind of envy. Anyway, so I want to get to this thing. I want to get to some stories. And they are yesterday's stories, I grant you. And it's been a long time. I cut the, the greatest story in the United States of America. There's nothing close to this. George Santos, Long Island oh Republican God. Congressman. <laughs> yes. There's nothing close to this. Not. This sure guy really got name? elected. It's mostly Nassau <laughs> County, northern Nassau County. My friends Eddie and Mindy, it's in their district. He got elected as a Republican. It's also a little bit of Queens. A little bit of Queens. It's North Fork, right? Is it North Fork? No. North Fork is way out in oh, Suffolk oh, County. Oh, no, sorry. no, no. It's Nassau County. It's close in. Mm-hmm. This guy got elected, and, and the New York Times did a big story on it, I guess, after the election. And you ask, well, maybe they should have done it before the election, but it would have influenced the election. Well, it shouldn't be their burden alone, no, I would add. No, the Granted. Democratic Party should have or investigated the this. Republican or, Party. or the Republican Party investigated its own. Yes. yes. You know, and nothing nothing is going to happen because their, their plurality is so thin, or majority is so thin, that they're not going to get rid of this guy. Here's Here's... What he made up. This is all I know that he made up. I think there's more. And he called it simply resume embellishment. No, 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 no. It's a bit of embellishment. But let's go through this. 
He made up the fact that he had a degree from college. He has no degree from college. He has admitted to this. He made up the jobs that he had. He has not had these jobs with Citibank, with, with Morgan Sachs. Stanley, Citi Goldman Group, Sachs. Goldman he Sachs. made that up. He made up his ancestry. He made oh, yeah. up his ancestry when he was speaking to a group of Jewish Republicans. He said he was Jewish on his grandmother's side or something like that from Brazil. And then he corrected it with one of the funniest lines I've ever heard. Well, no, no, I'm Jewish, <laughs> which is really funny. He says he's never been arrested. There's evidence he was arrested in Brazil. Nobody knows how he made his money. Um, he just it, it's all made up. It's all made up. Now, in, I can relate this to sports. George O'Leary oh, was an sure. excellent football coach, I believe, at Georgia Tech oh, yes. and got the yes. job at Notre Dame. And they went through his resume. Um, that's right. And the Notre yes. Dame people said, hold on a second. You, we, we, there's a discrepancy here. You didn't do this and you didn't do that. Yes. And he had already proven himself in the arena as a football coach. Yeah. He was really good. And he never served at Notre Dame. He left. He left Notre Dame, which, by the way, is fair. Sure. It's yeah. fair. Yeah. The other in our lives, the famous resume change is Janet Cook, oh, yeah. of course, who oh. made up a bunch of things. It's a great story to tell. She said she graduated from the Sorbonne and was fluent in French. And Benjamin Crow and Sheil Bradley <laughs> sat down with her one day and started talking in French. And Oof. she went, homina, homina, homina. Right? And he threw her right out of the office. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Because there is a price to pay. Yes. What do we think? Should this guy serve in Congress? He says, I will be seated. I will be sworn in. Well, in an age when there doesn't appear to be any accountability for anybody who commits fraud or lies, he will probably continue to serve in Congress. He also made a very strategic move early on and pledged his support to Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. Who's not going to boot him, even though he should. not going to boot him. Stand up. Exactly. Man up in this one, right? Right. What do you think? Well, as always, Jean is unassailable. She is correct. <laughs> but for me, the fact that you even ask that question is preposterous. Should he serve? Like, how are we at the place where that's an open question? Of course not. The you know the entire campaign was built on fraud. False. He it's all false. They know. voted for a guy who isn't this guy. Yes. I mean, this is not you know G too bad if it's like such a tight margin that this affects you know, relative sway. Um, but that's not the point. The point is this is a fraudulent campaign. I mean, he should be arrested. It, certainly you put, well, just th th there's $700,000, I believe, unaccounted for. Don't know where he got plane. it from. Right. Um, he's like a wage earner guy. I, I just, it, it, it well, is, the bar is so, so, so low. So here's, I, I would, this is what I would do. I'd, I'd do the, the election again, same two people, with the knowledge now and see what happens. And if they still want them, if they still want them, okay, God bless, as far as I'm concerned, but I would run the election over. How do you think the Jews are going to vote on that? They're not voting for this guy. <laughs> and part of that was, I believe he was a, a Holocaust survivor's uh Well, that's child. what he claimed. That's yes. not true. Yeah, it wasn't just like, it's I'm so cynical. It's, it's so you know, cynical. the most heart-rending, horrendous... Um, you know, personal biography you could fabricate. I, I it's be, it They can me. still get him. He ought to be on the same committees with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's on no committee. <laughs> they can still get him for his financial report, which apparently 
appears to be somewhat porous because he now says he's worth $11 million. And two years ago when he ran for Congress, he was worth $5,000. So something happened in those two Resume years. Resume embellishment. Everybody oh. does it, he said. Everybody just, yeah, this is not. To even just like give it a name as if that's an acceptable move. Resume. So we're in concert on this. It's called lying. We're in concert. Oh, yeah. Right. Is it like a kid's table in Congress? They could be like, you just sit over there with these other miscreants? Brutal. Another one. This is a good it's one. This is, for, this is for Jeannie, the woman who walked out of the restaurant. Without the woman paying who walked the out. Bill. She didn't pay. Janice Mosher. She walked out of the restaurant. She was sitting at a restaurant, eating a meal with someone else, waited and waited and waited for a bill, never got a bill. Never got a bill. Hmm. Walked out, sent a check. A couple of days down the road, if I, if I read this Contacted correctly. Contacted the restaurant. Contacted the restaurant. And I, she, she walked. And she took a lot of heat for walking. I ask you first, because you were the food editor. This is in your bailiwick. Did, what do you do? Well, I, I was also a waitress once. Okay. And I know that there is... Can't get a tip unless you give the bill. Th- that's Tough. true. <laughs> but I also understand two things. There's this sort of delicate balance about when the waitstaff should present the diner with the check. If it's too early, they don't like that. If it's too late, they don't like that. I think the best waiters like. And this porridge was just. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's also ten o'clock at night in a deserted restaurant. These are the last two. They're closing it. Yeah. You know, the staff bails. I've been. I've been on that end too. The dishwasher's gone you home. You hand a check and you say, "Pay it whenever you're ready." Right. I just wanted to make sure you That's had it. Right. That's right. This is right. a restaurant failure. It is. It's to- a restaurant failure. It is totally a restaurant fail- failure, and I do not blame her for walking out. But I. W- and she did the make good. And she did the make good. She took quite a chance because now what she should she should have left a twenty or some whatever the tip was going to be. She should have left the yeah. cash. or a note. Yeah. And a note. Yes. Yeah. So where are you on this one? Um, you know, yay that she made good. And and I was I bust tables I waited tables what else did I do name a menial waiting job. tables I've done we're it. getting into a Don oh, Henley lyric here I was here. terrible at that yeah I was a really good table busser <laughs> um, but I mean as a as a patron it, you know I have no trouble getting my rear end out of the seat to go like track down my my waiter if it's like oh I need some ketchup uh, I, sorry to bug you or could could we get a refill. I will find the person and say, sorry to rush you, but we're ready for the So check. you think she should have said... Well, no, I mean, I can't seriously blame her for not getting out of the seat. I'm just saying I would do that. And I think that's normal. And I think we all have to understand, post-pandemic, restaurants are not functioning like they used to be. You have to right. make allowances as a diner for all sorts of things. But just personally, I'm not so passive that I would wait until, uh, you know, to get a check and then just leave. And if I... I just can't see that happening. I would find my waiter, waitress. So, so Hello? I've eaten in a million restaurants. I mean, when, when you are a sports writer, you've eaten in a million yes. restaurants yes. in your life. Yes. There was a phrase that we had when we were very young and in college to actually walk out of a restaurant. It was called to yaboo. Yaboo. When you yabooed, you just didn't pay the check. You yabooed. No. But, but, but that was in college at a Dunkin' Donuts on Vestal Parkway. So let's not uh, get nuts. I've never embellishing here. This is, no, <laughs> yeah. this is unthinkable to me. It, to me, and I understand that the, and I do, I understand the restaurant should have given her a check. I would never walk out. I'd find yeah. somebody. I, when I'm ready to go, I would just say, look, I waited and I waited yeah. and I waited and now I'm going to find you. I'm not angry at her because there sure. was a make good. 
But I would have, I, I, it's unthinkable to me to walk out. Yeah, I agree. Ditto. And you also take the chance of being chased down the street by somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, like, I, why would you do that psychically to, to the wait staff who at some point will realize, oh, wow, they never paid. It's like if you have a pure heart and good intention, you can't just scribble a note. But anyway, again, I, so, I just yeah, wouldn't and, sit uh, on my rear end. My and, conflict on this away. is that I think it's the restaurant's fault. I do. Yes, I yeah. think that they're the last two in there. You, if you're waiting on that table, you've got to make some sort of contact with them, right? But I wouldn't. I couldn't walk out. Well, you're a restaurateur. Did this ever happen? Did, did <laughs> I'm sure it's happened. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, there's there's a percentage of y- your money coming in that accounts for the fact that people walk out. Yeah, they yeah. walk out. Breakage. Yeah. You know, I I think they walk out on a on a regular basis. When I was in college, we used to go a lot to the tombs at the 1789. Oh, yeah. ah, yes, the underground yeah. rascal sure. kind of place. Lovely. Mm-hmm. That was so, McCooey. Yeah, that was. McCoy. So there were steps downstairs into that t- cellar-like restaurant, but there was also a back door, a fire door. <laughs> Every night, at least, there would be a group of guys with about 85 pitchers of beer, and all of a sudden, boom, uh, out the fire door. But the waiters were so plugged in, and they would be like sussing this out so early. The entire wait staff, all guys from Georgetown, would take off after them. Outstanding. And I think it got ugly out there yeah, in the alley. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I understand that. I understand that. But I mean, I, I, walking out of a walking out of a restaurant without paying is just impossible to me to believe that you could do that. This yeah. is me this too. is a restaurant. This is a nice place, right? I mean, yeah. this is Yeah, it's just gotten very well reviewed in yeah, fact, that just place. Yeah, wild. One other thing before this is a, a minor sports thing for you. Were you covering the Washington football team, I always say the wrong words, when Josh Norman was signed? Yes, I believe I was. Yes. Okay, do you remember the signing? Josh Norman, for people that it don't know. Huge. Oh, yeah, they flew down there, yeah, brought him they back. Made him they a stole jersey. him. They yeah. stole him from the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, the season he was after an all he crushed pro, them in a game. He was an all-pro cornerback. Yep. And they signed him for a whole bunch of dough. Mm-hmm. And he... Came up here, and if you remember this, yeah. he wanted, he chased stardom like nobody ever. Yeah. He wanted to be on TV. He wanted to be on the national shows, uh, the CBS cable show. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to be on everything in the world, right? Yes. Yeah. And he was for about a year. Yeah. And then he was so bad on the field. He stunk so much on the field that it all went down the drain for him. Carolina... That's where he started, signed 35-year-old cornerback Josh Norman. So it's probably 10 years wow. ago that he was here. Yeah. To the practice squad, because starter J.C. Horn's status for Sunday's game against Tampa Bay, this is coming up, is up in the air. Josh Norman is, he's a cautionary tale. Because he chased fame and money outside of what they were paying him to do. And chased it so much that I think... It had an effect on his career, and his career went down the drain. He's never made – he's played in the league, but he's had like one interception a year or two or something like that. If you could look that up, what he's ever had. He's never been the same, and he came in here so full of himself, as as the kids say. He was smelling himself. 
But he was good to talk to, right? Because he was so chatty. Oh, I love the guy. You could fill a he notebook was, with him. Super smart, a joy to talk to. Was available. He would talk about his process. I mean, you know, he worked. He. he I, I. I have to disagree with Go. kind of your premise. I. I would not say what was his undoing is that he was media friendly and drawn to other avenues and picturing a, a, a post playing career life. I love that when players do that, you know, there's no professional athlete to me more exploited than NFL players. You know, they generally don't have guaranteed contracts, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I don't want to say 18 million things that go nowhere, but they have the shortest careers, shortest career. um, tend to have lifelong injuries more so than other pro, pro players. But let's not act as if Josh Norman was the single, you know, uh, once great superstar that the, the team overpaid for. Oh, my God, you know, no. There's Bruce, Bruce Smith, Smith there's, Deion Sanders. Yeah. Now, a ton of, I, what about Stubblefield, that big guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Stubblefield. Look, it was a long, 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 long list. And no, I, right. would, I would never... Adam Archuleta? Oh. Yeah, never <laughs> dump yes. Dion with Bruce oh, no, Smith Dion. No, yeah. in, in their... In their in, in their effort, what they put in, what they did as a teammate. I have absolute respect for Dion. In the interest of truth, we just had a malfunction here, and we went offline for a while, and now we're back, and Liz can continue to scold me about my Josh Norman well, position. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Okay, then I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Um, so <laughs> so uh, my first point is he was part of a very long list of over-enthusiastic, overpaid, ridiculous ill-advised signings that this team made for foolish reasons. Um, and and the, we all know who's on the list. Um, but one thing I would say about, he, he, he did lose his effectiveness at corner in the span of time I covered him. You know, that first year, nobody threw at him because his legend is so big. Um, and then he sort of gradually was exposed. And by the end of his tenure with the team, people were Throw, actually throwing at him, exploiting him, yes. whereas his counterpart, 22, 24-year-old cornerback, you know, did far, far better. Um, but I do think we should acknowledge something about the position of cornerback. You know, it, it's, it's a brutally, uh, it's a very difficult position, and you're exposed if you lose a nanosecond of your speed. So once you hit 30, 32, I, I, I think it's time to consider moving to safety or, or some other position. You know, you cannot be a, a cornerback for no, forever. The rare, rare, rare the, one. That's the gladiator position. Yeah. That's the gladiator position. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is totally determined by speed. And you lose yeah. speed at a certain point, and there's nothing you can do. The, the trickery doesn't help. All, all that happens is yes. you get flagged for pass interference. That's, That's all true. that happens. And, 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 you know. It's a harsh position. When they talked about Daryl Revis, Revis Island shut down corner. Last two years. That's it. That's the lifespan of a great corner. Yeah. Unless you're Deion Sanders, it lasts two years. That's just the way it goes. We will get out of here. Ann Hornaday will join us, yes, when we return. Yes. And we hope we don't have these issues again where we have to shut down or else we won't release this till four in the afternoon. <laughs> I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, 
interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. These are the Bedrocks with a song called Sunrise. Is that right? Sunrise. This is sent to us from Ray Ficker or Ray Fica, who does the lead vocals. They're from Arlington, Virginia. As always, thank you for all you do for independent artists. We've released our new single, Sunrise, on December 21st, 2022, to commemorate the winter solstice, which we also thought was the shortest day of the year. So much for that stroke of marketing genius. Yeah, I get slapped every year when I say it's the shortest day. But you're not alone in that. You know, you know, not sure when or if you'll get to this, but please wish all the gang of merry everything from the Bedrocks. It's lovely. They're a rock and roll band. Yeah. You know, and later in the show, when we talk about Bruce Springsteen, we'll talk about a guy who you just want to be a rock and roll guy. Now, he's not anymore. He's not a rock and roll guy anymore. He's sort of above that. But we'll get to all of that. Do that for Liz, because she's been to how many shows you been to? Shows with ticket stubs. I think it's around 160. (laughs) And then if you add the bars. It's it's over two hundred. Over two hundred, yeah. But I'm old, you know, and and I saw him first when I was seventeen. That's you okay. Know, well, he's old too. Show. We're all old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all old. Yeah. Ann Hornaday joins us now. Ann's not old. Ann is Ann, not old. No. We won't say that Ann is old. Ann, Ann joins us now, and I wanted um, because it's the end of the year, and I know you've written this. I know you've written the ten best movies. Mm-hmm. I saw it last week in the Post. Can you condense them to five movies that we'd actually like to see? Like, can you do that? You loved, you loved Top Gun, the, the remake of Top Gun. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm so happy that you love that because most of the time, critics and probably even you over the course of your life has sort of looked at movies like that and said, eh, no, I know it's a big hit, but no. But you really loved that movie, didn't you? I did, and I think part of it is that, my, like you said, my expectations were low. I mean... I went back and rewatched the first one, and the weaknesses of it just glare out now. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun, and it was escapist, and Tom Cruise was really cocky. But you know, it was it, the writing was was really corny, and actually, and even his performance I thought was was not one of his best. And then this one is just it it just checked all the boxes. This I thought the script was actually really smart. You know, it was it was much better written than the first one. I mean, it kind of goes beat for beat. It's almost a recreation of that first plot, but it's just it's executed at a higher level, and um, and I thought I thought his performance was actually really really terrific, as were all the supporting performances. Um, and I guess this is not no longer a spoiler, but there's a moment in the middle of the film when he reconnects with with the Val Kilmer character, which was just the most emotionally you know it was one of the most emotionally powerful scenes of the year. I mean, it was really genuine and. So I had a great time. It was fun to watch it with an audience. Everybody was was having a ball. And, you know, it set out, it did what it set out to do. It it delivered on all of its promises. And so I had to just give it, give credit where it was due. It was just a really good movie. I really like that. I, I will maintain forever and ever that The Hangover is the most brilliant movie and should have won the Academy Award for best movie of the year. I just love I don't like Hangover 2 or Hangover 3 or Hangover 8 whatever they're up to. But <laughs> I was every step of the way. This never happens in a comedy. 
I was surprised. Same here. Every step of the way, I just thought this is great. It's just a great movie. And movies like that, you know, they're never nominated for the Academy Award, let alone, you know, they don't win because they're never nominated. So I'm glad to hear you say that about this. So there are a couple of other movies where you say, oh, you need to watch this. This is really good. Well, you know, my next two in line, one was a, was, was artier. It's called Tar with Kate Blanchett. And it's almost the other I end like of the her. spectrum in terms of not being mainstream at all. It's very rarefied. It's very arcane. But she is, oh, my God, you know, she's so magnificent. And she plays this symphony orchestra conductor who is um, kind of brought low by a Me Too era charge of, of abusing her power. And... It's deeply psychological. Again, she is, you know, it's, it's really all about her. Although, again, the, the supporting performances are all really good. And it's done by, um, the director is Todd Field, who did In the Bedroom and Little Children, and he hadn't directed in a long time. And he does, he just sets up the atmosphere so beautifully of this kind of hushed world of classical music that's all about sophistication and kind of understatement, but all these emotions are kind of roiling under the surface. So I just loved what he did there, and I loved what the work that she did. And then my I third... Saw her. I saw her live on stage. What? I did too. Uh, I saw her live on stage in the Tennessee Williams play. Oh, yeah. Um, and and it, it's... What, so what's it like? So I think of her as such a quintessential screen object. She was dominating. Oh my God. She was so great. And she, and you would never believe she was from Australia. Right. I I mean, she had the accent. It was perfectly done. And it was amazing. You saw her? I saw her live in Uncle Vanya. Okay. The production of the, the Sydney uh, theater company. I think it's directed by her husband. This is, I know this is your interview with the fabulous Anne, but but she's such a stupendous actress, oh, and I was just pinching myself all over to see her live at the Kennedy Center. But it was a tour de force cast, you know, so she was, obviously, she didn't play Uncle Vanya. Um, she was a smaller no, but role, but she was amazing. Which is the play? Which is the, it's, it's not suddenly last summer. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Cat on a Hot Tin mm-hmm. Roof. So oh, it's Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. that's a role. So I have now, in my life, and I... Go to, I used to go to plays all the time, love plays. I would tell you that the two best performances I've ever seen were by Australians. Mm. That Hugh Jackman in The Boy From Oz mm-hmm. was the best I ever saw. Mm. Greatest performance I ever saw. Mm. And Kate Blanchett. Wow. Mm. You know, playing, and she's playing a Tennessee Williams character. Come yeah. on. I mean, it's just so hard to do. All right, what's the other movie? I'm sorry I, to okay. go sideways. Uh, no, this is so much fun. I just love talking about these things. Now, the third one, I'm not even sure you and I talked about this one, TK, but this was just my kind of my little crush. It's called Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Oh, and it wasn't, it wasn't in theaters. It only played on Hulu. It's still on Hulu. Oh, good. With Emma Thompson. Do you get the Hulu? Okay, I get the, get the Hulu. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, get the, I don't get the Hulu. All right, let's all get the Hulu. All right, Emma Thompson. <laughs> Emma oh, Thompson. oh, this is the one where she wants to rediscover herself as a sexual being. Correct, right? Mundo. Yeah, she's yes. a great and, actress. Oh my gosh, like Kate Blanchett, right? Like you can watch yeah. her, and she just gets yeah. better and better. And this performance, she's funny. She's she's just she's kind of peppery and tart, and a little bit. She's just everything. And then. Her opposite number, it's really a two-hander. It's, it's just these two people who have these encounters in a hotel room over the course of a, a few months. But he's a newcomer um, named Daryl McCormick. And if anybody happened to go see, not go, 
anybody happen to see the Apple series Bad Sisters? With yes, Sharon I did. Blood? I get Apple. I love that. I ought to get Apple. It's good. Apple. Um, but Daryl McCormick he? is the is the brother is the brother who has the 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 you know he's the cute brother. I mean they're both. Cute, oh yeah, yeah. Got it. Got he's it. The really. So cute if brother. you say hotel rooms all over the country, I think of Up in the Air. I think of George Clooney <laughs> oh, and Vera Farmiga. Is that how yeah. that's yeah, yeah, pronounced? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and Anna Kent. No, but this is just yeah. this is almost like same time next year where it's the same hotel. I think mm. it's the same hotel room. But they they anyway. It's just it's really just well for written, beautifully sake, directed. Let's get room five twenty seven. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Oh, so you like that one too? Can yeah. I? Can I? Um, I'm going to ask you something I've never asked before. Because you're used to reviewing movies. No, Hallmark movies. Oh, they are. It, it's an incredibly smart franchise it is they're on in 20 percent of the homes in america almost all the time and my home is one of them i think it's the same movie all the time but i want to give credit where credit is due you would what do you think of have you watched them what do you think of them what do you think of the sort of rationale behind hallmark movies and the writing of them and the you know and and the visuals that they give you you know that's a Great question, and to my shame, I don't watch them because usually that's my busy time of year where I'm trying to watch all these, mm, you know, right. award movies and things that are coming out. But I will say, in my kind of human experience, what I've found is that people put them on like wallpaper. I mean, they, they just sort of put the TV <laughs> right. on, and they're running all day as kind of a soothing, self-soothing background. It's almost like Muzak, you know, it's like a... It's like having like an oldie station playing in your dentist office, where it's just it's just comforting. Um, it's predictable. It's pretty to look. You know, it's like usually pretty to look at, and kind of they're not. Um, so I think you're right. It is a brilliant. They've they've figured it out. I mean, they they have figured out their audience and what the audience wants, and they just give it to them. They just you know shovel it at them all day long, and that's how they consume it. You know, it's just sort of. Um, not as a sit, you know, like not as a discreet viewing experience, but just as a, an environment almost. They're done so well. A, a friend They're of mine so well. lives near the local firehouse, and she has gotten to know the firemen. They have Hallmark Channel on all the <laughs> Stop. time. There you because go. When, because when the alarm goes off, yeah, you, they you can, can pick leave. up and leave it, right. and then they come back and they pretty it's much the know movie. what happened yeah. and how it's going to end. There's no oh, downside. Oh, I love it. it. That's right. I, they, they've also released mugs and napkins oh, and T-shirts. And yes, it's so <laughs> whoever sort of invented it and pushes it that person's he or she should be yeah. paid in the millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable how how good it it is from what they're trying to do. I mean, well, it's really and not good. only that, it's really good. You no, know, you're right. And I also think Hollywood they could learn a thing or two because it's like I think this year. I mean, yes, a few things have hit and connected with audiences, but a lot of things haven't. Actually, one of the movies I'm going to talk about did not. And so I think there's a real crisis right now of, of mm. you know, movie makers themselves. It, it, it goes to the mm. actual movies, um, but also the marketing and the studios. Just like they, I, I'm not sure that they are getting it, you know, and, and understanding how to connect with 
the viewers yeah. they need to connect with, the way that you just described, like these Hallmark people, they know their people, you know, they know their oh, community. They do. Yeah. And oh, um, they do. that is the, that is what it's all about right now. It's like you have got to, it's, you know, the guy I, I um, briefly interviewed, Chris Smith, who's a wonderful filmmaker. He's been working for many, many years, but he kind of hit the big time. He produced the Tiger King series. Uh-huh. Um, and he said, you know, I don't start anything now until I know exactly who the audience is. You know, it's like you mm-hmm. have to know who they are, and you have to know how you're going to get to them. It's just, it's not, you can't leave it up to chance anymore as if they ever did, but really you can't now. So the last few days, I've seen the ads for the new Tom Hanks movie, which oh, I think yeah. is called A Man Named Otto. Do you know, yeah. I really like Tom Hanks. I, I wonder, have you heard anything about this? You know what? I've heard little, and I haven't seen it, and it's a remake huh? of a European film named The Man Called Uwe, which was a sort of mm-hmm. charming... You know, that's one of those things where I, I must admit, even though some remakes can be great, and I, you know, but a lot of them aren't. Like, when they... When you take kind of a quirky little European film and then like, oh, I know, we'll put Tom Hanks in it. Usually <laughs> yeah. it doesn't work out that way. You know, so I, 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 I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not like rushing out to, uh, okay. to check it out, but I, I will. W- one other question. Yeah. Did you want to be a movie reviewer your whole life? Or did you start oh, God, out as doing something else? How did no. you get to it? I feel like Chuck and Roxy here, but how did you, <laughs> how did you get to be a movie reviewer? Completely sideways. I thought we. I always thought wow. no, no. It was a complete accident. <laughs> I was. Wow. Um, I was a journalist. I was like a, you know, I was a, a freelancer in New York in the 1980s, just making a living and writing about everything for anybody who would hire me. But that was at, at a moment when pop culture was becoming like a thing. And so Entertainment Weekly was starting and Premier Magazine was starting. And there were a lot, there were just a lot more outlets for pop culture writing at that moment. So I actually did start writing for Premier, which is really probably where it started, you know, because it was based on the trajectory was really, I did pieces for Premier on the basis of those. I got a, I, I started writing for the New York Times Arts and Leisure section. And these were all features. These were not reviews. You know, these were interviews right. with filmmakers and things like that. And then sort of based on my reporting experience, I was hired to be a critic at the Austin American Statesman in Texas because Austin was really on its way up as a film capital. Mm -hmm. You know, like Richard Linklater was working and Robert Rodriguez was starting out. Mike Judge was starting out. South by Southwest had just um, added a film festival component, right? And and it was a big location for Hollywood. Like, studios were um, using it as a, you know, they had, like, a really generous rebate program. So they wanted someone who could write reviews, but also report on what was going on in the film um, scene. So, so no, I just, I, I, I learned on the job. Like I was never a movie, big movie fan growing up or anything like that. So <laughs> um, I'm still learning as they say, but no, yeah, scared? it was a complete sideways thing. When they hired you to be a critic, were you scared? Cause you've oh, not done terrified. it before. I would imagine, you know, I had written book reviews. I'd done like brief book reviews for the, for it's the not time. The same. So I had not reviewed same. before. Not the same. But I was terrified because I didn't have this institutional knowledge. Yeah. You know, I didn't right. I felt like really so my dear friend David Friedman, who had been a TV critic at the Philadelphia Daily News and also had kind of moved from being a GA reporter to a critic. Before I left New York, he said, I'm gonna give you the same advice someone gave me when I started, which is 
anytime you do a review, ask yourself three questions. What was the artist trying to achieve? Did they achieve it? And was it worth doing? And literally, my first review for the Austin American Statesman was the amazing movie To Die For. Remember that? With Nicole Loved Kimmel. it. Oh, oh I loved, loved it. it. Ileana Douglas. Yeah. Oh, loved my that gosh. Movie. So great. Loved Henry, it. Gus Van Zandt, that oh, cast. Yeah. And I sat there in front of that computer, and I didn't know what to say because it was so good. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, it's just so good. I hope you didn't think they'd all be that good. Yeah, that's really good. But, you know, in a way, it's Wasn't harder Jack, because Didn't thinking, Joyce Maynard write that? Oh, yeah. Didn't yes. Joyce Maynard have something to do with that? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. It's adapted great. from her, from her. It's piece, great. Her book. Yeah, no, yeah. it was kind of perfect that movie. And so then it's like, well, why is it? Per- so I sat there just staring at that screen. I, I, you know, I remember that feeling of just thinking. And then I went back to those three questions. I just went back to those three questions and I bashed it out. And here we are. How many years later? I mean, God, it's been a, it's been a journey. yeah, but. Okay, but you you couldn't have been confident when you first started. Obviously, you have to be a little bit frightened of this new job where people are. It's not like being a reporter. It's nothing Mm -hmm. like being a reporter. Mm -hmm. It's your word that's going to drive them to or away from the box office. It's a big deal. It is, right? Yeah, I mean, it was intimidating, and it was also intimidating knowing in a town like Austin, like, people do read you, you know? (laughs) And a lot of people there are in the business. Like, there are a lot of screenwriters Yeah, and they're going to say, well, who's this? Who's this? What is she talking about? Absolutely. No, and I'm I'm sure even to, yeah, no, I'm always aware of that, but I just try to just be as honest as I can be, as transparent as I can be. And, um, you know, the one thing, like, when I go out and make, you know, I talk to groups and especially students, um... You know, it's a wonderful job, and it's one of the greatest jobs in the world. And so, of course, people are like, well, how do you get that job? And I really have to go back to saying I am a product of a liberal arts education. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think Amen. one yes. of my great you know. gifts in life was, was not only my college education, but my high school was learning how to learn. If you don't mm-hmm. know something or you're not an expert in something, go find out how to do it or ask the right people or, you know, it. so... Yes, yes don't plug into TikTok to, to see cats throwing balls at each other. There you go. <laughs> That's not anything. That's a good tip. Yes. Oh, good. Thanks, Anne. Thank you all. It's been a pleasure. Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah. Happy New Year, Anne. Yes. Anne Hornaday, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Jeannie and Liz. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. Is it the Bedrocks one more time, Aww. right? Oh, no, no, this is Crossroads Saints. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Crossroads Saints, and it's called She Comes to Me. Yes. Played these uh, these blokes the other day with Daryl Venable, amongst others. Yes, who, who got in that accident, didn't think he could ever sing again, and yes. they were wonderful. Yes. Tell the people if they want to send in their music how they do it, because Michael's off today. You can send it, uh, your original music, your original music, yeah. not like, hey... I know Paul McCartney used to play something from him <laughs> yeah, or Bruce Springsteen. No, we actually need the artist's permission. We can sing the jingles at TonyCornizerShow.com. All right, so now we're going to get to talk about Bruce Springsteen because Liz has been to all of these things for so many years. And uh, it was Liz Clark who enabled me, got me to somebody who would get me a ticket to see the Bruce Springsteen show on Broadway. I about that. You did that. I'm totally grateful. I had a. Really, you know, probably fourth row seat. I really good. I've talked about it a lot. I hooked you up. I've talked about it because the thing that 
impressed me the most. I mean, and when I, I I'm saying impressed, not in that sense of of you know I've looked up to somebody, but no, impressed me that I took away from it was Bruce Springsteen in the first ten minutes of the show. Did you go to see the show? Did you see it? I did not. Okay. How many times did you see it? Just twice. Just twice. Just okay. Twice. In the first ten minutes of the show, Bruce Springsteen sits out there or stands out there, whatever he does, and he says, "I was seven. I was eight. I was watching Ed Sullivan." I saw Elvis Presley, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. Seven or eight, watching, and I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a guitar. I'm going to teach myself to play. I'm going to be a rock and roll star. It's like the bird song, so you want to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> and that's what he wanted to do. And I sat there, and I got chills because I was seven or eight when I knew that the only thing I wanted to do, the only thing, was to be a sports writer on a newspaper. That's all I wanted to do. I would get the New York Post. And I would get the New York Daily News when my father came home from a job in Manhattan and we got news they delivered to us on Long Island and I read from the back to the front. And I just wanted to be a sports writer. Honest to God, that's all I want. The thing I do now is great. Makes you rich and famous, not gonna knock it. But all I wanted to do was the other thing. Flash forward to watching this interview the other day that I demanded everybody watch between Howard Stern and Bruce Springsteen, which goes on for over two hours. On HBO. Over two hours on, on HBO. And Bruce Springsteen says another thing that got me in the same way. I'll just make it very short. He gives a long example of it. But he says, as everybody who has done really well who is not in science or math, if you're, not, if you're in the arts in any way, you're not in science or math, and you've done really well, Bruce Springsteen says, I was incredibly lucky. This is just how I feel. I have been incredibly lucky. I have been there when they, to catch the money they threw off the train. Maybe you weren't there. You could have been there. I was there. He gives this example of just a small percentage of people go out and buy a guitar and teach themselves to play, and a smaller percentage actually get in a band, and a smaller percentage then actually make a record, and a smaller percentage then actually get a contract, and a smaller percentage then actually become hits. And I went that other step. He says, I'm incredibly lucky. He is, it's, it's worth your, t what just overall, start, Gene, what did you think of, all of it, because the great added pleasure, and Bruce Springsteen knows this. He's 73 years old. He knows when you want to talk to him, he better bring the guitar and the piano. That's part of it. That's part of it, because at core, and I learned this about myself in radio and not in newspapers. I learned this about myself in radio. I'm a performer, and that's what he is. That's why he's not going to quit. He's a performer. He really likes it. And he plays and he sings. Well, you two know so much more about him than I. And I like Bruce. I'm not the fan that you all are or Steve Sands is, okay? So I learned a lot about him in this two-hour-plus interview. The thing that struck me right away was his humility. I mean, yes. I was not expecting that yes. at all. There's a certain, like, laugh that he has <laughs> that is self-deprecating and sort of sweet that I had not expected. There's a charming insecurity about him. The whole time he was sitting on that stool, 
he had to have a guitar in his hand. It, it's like clearly like such a part of him, maybe sort of a crutch. That's a crutch, sure. But sure, um, I I had no idea I was going to like him as much as I did. Yeah, I, I, he's extraordinarily, extraordinarily likable as he is in the show. Extraordinarily likable. Tell us what your thoughts were watching the interview, Liz. Well, you know, I do think. Jeannie's comments are the most valuable because she has fresh eyes and I'm not sure I have a lot of credibility on Bruce with your <laughs> listeners. It's like, well, she's a freak, you know, <laughs> but, um, but I just love the points that struck Jeannie because they struck me either anew or in a, in a deeper way. And that for sure, you know, Linus and the security blanket, that's the guitar for Bruce. And it, it always has been when I've, seen him do deeper interviews that he has to have it and you know he is and he acknowledges uh, a loner he was a bit of an outcast growing up um, even amid the success of the band he is a single operator you know singer songwriter and you know he can communicate through the guitar and songwriting in ways that I don't think were easily accessible to him certainly before decades and decades of therapy. And that's another aspect of the humility, especially for a guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that he is very frank about, um, it it was 32 or 33, he started seeing a therapist um, because he was- Spurred by John um, Landau. Landau. Yeah. Um, Or I'm not so much sure it was spurred by Landau, but Landau hooked him up with a guy who would not then sell a story, you know, a discreet- therapist and I think he's had a few but I mean this is like a lifelong pursuit but his whole goal was we all know the cautionary tale of uh, Elvis Janis Joplin all this sort of suicide romance of of rock stars not that he was on a suicidal path but he he was aware he was on a path to a very lonesome life because he was at base a narcissist you can't be a rock star without being a narcissist and having an, a huge ego but realizing that that was going to be a lonely life, you know? And so how do you make room for other people? How do you sublimate all that ego stuff enough to sustain a relationship and ultimately have kids? I mean, I I found that lovely that he talked about that. So the therapist part, the thing, the, the hook that drew everybody into the Sopranos. Oh, yes. Was that Tony Soprano had a therapist. The big macho guy. Yeah, yes. I forgot. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's all that's, that's all whole... I could think about. Ah. I don't know which came first, but mm-hmm. I, that's all I could think about with with Springsteen. The what I hmm. what I also took away was th- th- that's a great band. Oh, but yes. they serve at his pleasure. Oh yeah. He's the band. Okay? When he said, I sat at this piano and I wrote every one of these songs sitting at this piano, because I remember when I went to see him at the bottom line, and I'm one of the few who can say that they wow. went to the bottom line, I remember he sat at Jungle Land, he played the piano. Everybody thought, oh, it's all guitars, because what's the most, the most famous line he's got is, well, I got this guitar and I learned how to make it talk. It's the single most famous line, and that's what you associate. And the cover of the album, he's got the guitar yeah. on his shoulder and he's leaning on Clarence, but he sat at the piano, self-taught. Yes. Yeah. Self-taught. Yeah. What I liked, when you talk about the humility, and this is part of the humility to me. 
where he said, God, you know, I think I'm underrated as a guitar player. I actually <laughs> think I'm a little bit better than people say. And, you know, because that's, that's wounding a little bit. Like you think to yourself, like, do you used to write, Tony? I used to write. I was, I was okay. I was pretty good. Yeah, were you any good? Yeah, well, I think I was a little better than that question. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, not to go crazy, but that was so. It was so attractive of him as an aging guy to to tell you how this happened mm. and make it mm. very clear to you that he deli- he he was Uber. The band is sitting there. They put in the order. He delivers the order. He tells them, this is how we're going to play this, and this is how we're going to play this, and this is what... And he is, he is the boss in a totally oh, yeah. different way from you think of the boss. Right. No, right, Liz? I mean, that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. But, you know, going back to the, the moment you distilled about his recognition of just the role of luck in his life, that this percentage, this ever, ever, ever smaller percentage, he, he also added to that the serendipitous timing that he was among the first rock stars to get paid. And he made a great great sports analogy that you could probably uh, repeat better than I. But, you know, like the baseball players, the greats who really never got paid. So um, so that was, you know, I I really loved it, but I loved um, the the humility and the frankness, and and I do was familiar with his geeky kind of awkward mm-hmm. laugh. It's a very funny laugh uh-huh. that, that always so, cracks me up. So I, I can't emphasize this enough that he plays a bunch of tunes. Oh yeah, um, and some of them maybe he knows he's going to play at a certain point, like in the show, and maybe some of the others he doesn't. But he's not playing and singing rock and roll. It's just mm. it's not that he is sitting there with a guitar or with a piano, with now. I don't want to say a better voice than he's ever had, but a different voice than he's ever had. Mm-hmm. He is the interpreter of his own lyrics now. He is Bob Dylan now. You know, what Bob Dylan was as a kid, and he loves Bob Dylan. He's Bob Dylan now. When he, I wept when he played The Rising. I sat in my house and wept. I just thought it was, and when he talked about it being a prayer at the end. Yeah. And and you are not. He I forgot he was raised Catholic. Oh that yeah, yeah. Forgot that. Oh yeah. So, and and it and so some of the things him. he does when he just sits down and he plays and it's just him. Um, it it's it's remarkable, isn't it? You know, it's the, like better than ever. The other thing I'm remembering is how honest he was about the fragility of age. That he oh, wears yeah. hearing aids. He wears hearing he aids. Had to have an operation that scared him to death that on his, his neck. Vocal cords were pushed to one side for three months. Um, And also, he said, I've gone years without writing songs. And it didn't... Oh, right. This is what I wanted to specifically ask you. that part. Yeah. Because that which created Bruce Springsteen's power and energy and drive and longing are long since sated with money and position and all of that. This is why genius doesn't appear most of the time in your 50s and 60s and does in your 20s and 30s. And I wondered, because he said he's, he doesn't, yeah. He, it, it's not like, there are guys, there was a period of time when Billy Joel sat and wrote classical music every single day for a couple of years. Because mm. Paul McCartney did the same thing. Because mm. what have I got? What do I still have? What are your thoughts on that and the sort of recognition that I don't have to go... He's, he said, I don't go there at 10 o'clock every single day and write for four hours. I don't do that. 
What are your thoughts on that and who Bruce Springsteen is now? Oh, boy. That's a hard uh, one. It is a hard one. I mean... But there's I bagels do, at know, the end. I mean, I still, <laughs> I still, to me, the second record is my favorite record. You know, if I'm buried with a record, it's going to be the wall. It isn't in the E Street Shuffle. Yeah. And, uh, and so I love the phase of his writing life when he was writing out of just hunger, yearning, desperation, this totally romantic ideal that yeah, there's a future it's not in this dead in town or there's yeah. a future and she looks like this and you know it, it, I'm going to tell her it's going to last forever and it'll be like five minutes right. <laughs> but like I just I just love that desperation of those records with with the total romantic layer can't have um, that now I think it, it you know not terribly long ago he had a line in a song referring to himself as a rich man in a poor man's suit, which I thought was quite frank and revelatory, kind of acknowledging, yeah, I, I, I made it. I All my needs are met, but I still am going to wear the flannel shirt or, or do this, and I'm a bit of a poser. But I love that at the very end when he, when he frankly admits he never worked in a factory, he <sighs> never had a dead-end job, but his dad did, and that was his image of what manhood and the dead-end life that a lot of um, American men lead, and that's why your family life is really pretty dark. And so his kind of channeling that isn't so much like a faux persona, but it's the way I honor my dad, you know, and people who, for whom life was like that. So, you know, I don't, Particularly, I'm not crazy about the last couple records he's put out, partly because now of the he's put one out where values. he's doing other people's songs. Yeah. Not his. I yeah. love the concept. I don't like the execution. But the, okay. anyway, blah, blah, blah. There's that. But I, what was the point I wanted to make? Oh, yeah. When he talked about the big writing gaps or the fact that it's not structured like I'm in my seat by 10 and I write until I have coffee or blah, blah, blah. Um, I never thought of him as that type of writer because he writes out of emotion and um, not, gee, I got to turn in a record. Um, But he did say, you know, it was the loss of his first bandmate or the last remaining survivor of his first bandmate that drew him to the notebook. He's like, I I write when I have something to say, I guess is about as simple as he put it. And... What do you have to say if you're a millionaire a million times over? You have all your needs met. Um, but who gets out of this world without missing their parents or missing your loved ones and, and the people you grew up with and wanting to drive down the street where you once lived and remember what it sounded like and felt like? And he's, that's all accessible to him. So I think, I think one of the things in, when you talk about his humility, what, what comes out is also, like, he's a real person. He's a human being. You know, now maybe they all are. Maybe Mick Jagger is. Maybe Paul McCartney is. Maybe they all are. But I watched him be one. I watched him be this person. I, he talked about his mother. Is, he didn't talk about his mother. He talks about his mother in the show. But he said something that I never expected because I just... Never assume that Bruce Springsteen or anybody else who's really famous and really accomplished has any brothers or sisters. 
And he talked about how much he loved his sister. Yeah. Yeah. He just really talked about that. It was really, you know, it was really so nice to see the only thing that, you know, and this is my need. um, I wished he had talked about his relationship with his children because it's tough. It's tough to be the son of, not as much as I wanted. Okay. He talked about a lot about with his dad, you know, but I wanted to hear that, that other part too. And he said that one thing, he said, yeah, you know, it's great when 50,000 people right. boo your parents, but now they <laughs> cheer for him. He said, I so, loved that. so we don't I bring mean, it in the house. Too. So we don't bring yeah. it in the house. Yeah. Now, I don't know, you, can, you can't do that because every time he walks in the house, he's Bruce Springsteen, but I, I enjoyed it. Very much, and I enjoyed the singing and the playing, yeah, right? When he's just sort of I noodling. True. And at the end, there was some question about how in the world would you perform Born to Run as a solo acoustic thing? And, and he like, did it. He did it. And, and he did it. Yeah. It was it, the, the, the real bleakness of Born to Run comes out in that version. And it's, it's sort of the epic guy anthem, fist in the air, born to run, you know, mm. but it's quite, quite dark and sad um, in, in some ways. But Many of yeah. his songs are quite, oh, yeah, quite dark yeah, yeah, and yeah. sad. Yeah, he talked the about dark, sure. the best love song he'd written in the last 20 oh, or yes, 30 years yes. and, and tougher than the rest. I never, I never would have thought that, but when he talked Ditto. about it mm-hmm. and then he played it, you go, oh, yeah, this makes all the sense in the world. He's not unaware that he's Bruce Springsteen either. No. And that's fair, right? Yes. I mean, you couldn't ask him to just say, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, that happened a long time ago. That, no, no, he knows who he is. And, and, and he is a performer. It's, it's good, right? Yes. When you see something like that, it's good. It, it moved me in, in a lot of ways I didn't anticipate. And so for skeptics who are thinking, oh, good God, how, how ridiculous to listen two hours to this artist. It, you know, it's just a shtick. You know, it, it, you can't sustain that level of candor, and um, I don't think for that long. Yeah, I, I mean, I I'm the acid test yes, for that. Yes, as you should. Because yeah. I am You're the not. acid test for musicals as well. <laughs> right, if you well, I, I don't even listen to them. <laughs> no. Well, you said you liked Hamilton. I liked Hamilton. I liked uh-huh. Hadestown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good, that's great, So too. you're getting... It depends on the musical. I mean... And Escape to Margaritaville. <laughs> no, not so much. But I'll tell I you why I, I understand that I liked them. Because in both of those musicals, the lyrics and the dialogue morph very easily back and forth. Whereas yes. many traditional musicals there's some dramatic scene going on between the star, the actor, and the actress that comes to a dead stop yeah. so they can <laughs> sing, Oh, sure. What a Beautiful Morning. South Pacific and Oklahoma, Absolutely. Baby. Yes. That's how it so works. So that's my yes. problem. All of it. Right. I wish you could have seen um, Girl from the North Country. It, it's the greatest. That intrigued me. Oh, my God. That's the Dylan one. Yeah. It's the Dylan mm-hmm. one, but it's not a, a musical it. about Dylan's songs. I mean, it, all the songs are... Are Dylan songs, but the storyline is has nothing to do with Dylan, and it, it's it it had a short life because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I saw it in previews, and then mm-hmm. it, the pandemic came and shut it down. But if it's ever rebooted, it's it's it interested me. Unbelievably yeah. powerful. You would love it. We'll take a break. We'll come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. 
use the code because it's the smart thing to do. <laughs> Buy a suit so you can look like Nigel. Johnny O, Harry's and Indochino. There's no excuse when every show he will tell you. The brilliant Joe Arrow. It's just <laughs> so great. It's just so great. Great pups, Joe. Nigel, you want to do the Bethesda bagel ad? Bethesda the bagels. The girls are awaiting the bagels. Yes, the reward <laughs> at the end of the rainbow. Yes, uh, Bethesda bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com, forward a location in the D.C. area nearest you, then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. I guess that's it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say we have so much in common. We both love soup and snow peas. We love the outdoors and talking and, and not Jennifer talking. Coolidge. She's in a commercial. <laughs> she she I think it's a Target commercial. She's in White Lotus. She's, she's fabulous. Oh, she's, you have yes. to see White Lotus. Yeah. Thanks to our guest today, Ann Hornaday. <laughs> Thanks as well to today's sponsors, Policy Genius, ZipRecruiter, Simply Safe. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. My thanks to Joe Arrow for that song. My thanks to Sean for being on the show again today. Makes us very happy. Let's thanks, do some Sean. emails. This is uh, from DG. You mentioned Chuck and Roxy of the Laura Littles podcast, and I was episode 172. <laughs> I knew that Roxy, whose real name is Megan, is a Rockette. My daughter told me last week she was taking the girls to Radio City to see the Rockettes. I texted Roxy and asked her if they could meet her after the show. She was so nice, said have them come to Exit 15 at the end of the show. My grandkids were thrilled. As you can see, it's so nice when people go out of their way to do something special. Happy, healthy New Year to you and your entire family and crew. Regards, DG. You've been on the Rock, Chuck and Roxy show. They're charming. Show. Right. They're better than this. No, I, I've heard it. It's They've got their fans. Have you been on yet, Liz? I haven't, and I feel like I might have an email invitation I'm tardy replying to just because I'm, I, I mean. I think you're going to have to be on. I, I would be honored. Yeah. I'm just a bit chaotic. From Patrick Sitter in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This morning for breakfast, I ate a stick of butter. I explained <laughs> to my eyebrow-raising wife, it's just another one of those power of the show things. Anyway, so far, no rectal repercussions to report. <laughs> I'll keep you posted. P.S. The Christmas lights along Africa Road in Galena, Ohio were spectacular. <laughs> Have you heard about butter boards? No. This is the new big appetizer. This just is my butter? cup of it's tea. It's just butter? You spread soft butter on a clean board, and then you sprinkle it with nuts or dried fruit or whatever. Really? And then people just take a cracker or a piece oh. of bread and wipe it off the board. Well, that's interesting. The dog would just lick it. Yeah, I was going to say, the dog has a theory for that. From Eric Robbins in Silver Spring, Maryland. One's from the bayou, one throws his poo. We're going to need some clarification on which one is which. I'll take my answer off the air. From Matthew Hatfield in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My relatives are confused as to why they received presents from James Carville, T-Boy Lachelet, and the Air Force. In any event, just writing to say thank you to the pod and James for outstanding triple plays, allowing it to be a Merry Christmas in the Hatfield House. On another note, since my email to you all back in September in reference to Lachiserie being said during the Lake Taylor Maury football game at Powhatan Field in Norfolk, which the public address <laughs> announcer later wrote you back, I've been stopped at a grocery store, restaurant, and at a local basketball game by folks who heard my email to your show, all greeting me with a hearty Lachiserie. Never ceases to amaze. From Richard Gardner in Syracuse, New York. 
The stories of dogs eating themselves sick reminds me of a a dog a friend of mine once had. The dog got very sick from eating its dog blanket. After many visits to the vet, my dog does that too, surgery to remove the blanket and a recovery period in which he had to stay fairly calm for quite a while so as not to damage the stitches, the dog made a full recovery and promptly ate another blanket. (laughs) Right. Good dog. From Eric Lorndigan, oh, he sends something, um, he sends me as Charlie Brown and Chessie as the dog on top of the... Yes, after having eaten the butter. House. Yeah, hope you feel butter soon. That's very nice. And the dog is going bleh. <laughs> From Chris Van Sells in Forest Hills, Maryland, Dear Dr. Grandpa, so the new game is stuff our dogs have ever eaten? I got that. Here's a non-butter entry. A few Christmases ago, I brought our dog Tyson, 120 pounds, a squeaky candy cane. Within seconds, he had torn it wide open. So they all do that. I was parading around like Chessie with a mouthful of Frisbees. Bringing over to me, I noticed a walnut-sized plastic speaker about to fall out of the stuffing. As I grabbed the toy from his mouth, the squeaker popped out, arced through the air, and was immediately swallowed whole. My kids spent the next few days poking Tyson's belly like he was the Pillsbury Doughboy, hoping to hear a squeak. Tyson was totally nonplussed, and the squeaker was never seen or heard from again, praying for a quick road to recovery. Uh, from Brian in Long Valley. In what can only be described as a first cousin to a DA moment, I can completely relate to your recent story about Chessie eating the butter off the counter. I have a Bernese Mountain Dog whose head is right at counter level. Those are big dogs. And has on multiple occasions swiped full sticks of butter off the butter dish on our counter. In addition to the butter, he likes hair ties, used tissues. (laughs) Maggie ate used tissues all the time. Paper towels, rocks, and full branches of the Arborvitae, Arborvitae, tree in my backyard. Perhaps a new game. What has my dog eaten and is still alive? P.S. About a week ago, while riding in the car and listening to the pod with the woman to whom I'm related by marriage, I explained that you were possibly having surgery. With a compassionate only she can muster, she replied, he can do the show from the hospital, right? <laughs> Gotta like that. Thanks for that. From Dylan in Raleigh, North Carolina. So the new game is listing weird things our dogs have eaten? <laughs> Once my childhood dog, Bear, ate an entire five-pound bag of Skittles I had stashed away oh. in my room. Our family realized something was amiss when Bear was let outside and proceeded to vomit a rainbow all over the porch. (laughs) A quick search in my room confirmed that Bear had found the Skittles and promptly devoured them, plastic bag and all. The incident did provide my dad the opportunity to invent a new Skittles tagline, taste the rainbow, vomit the rainbow. (laughs) From Ted in Richmond, when I was a kid, my dad had a great idea for a songbird feeder, filling a meatloaf pan with bacon fat and bird seed. Unfortunately, he hung it within the reach of my beagle, Sport, who proceeded to eat the whole thing. It was several days before Sport was allowed back in the house. From Leslie Thomas in Hillsborough, North Carolina, we always had German shepherds. They never got people food. One night, my mom was making the school lunches. Since there are six kids... My mom brought the big five-pound roll of bologna that was wrapped in red plastic. Mom must have turned her head because the bologna roll disappeared. (laughs) Red plastic and all. She looks all around and sees the dog was sitting there, and she could see big lumps on either side of the dog. So the mom calls the vet and was told, just put the dog in the backyard. It might be a rough night unless he signs happy Hanukkah. From John Thomas Mace. Uh, John is where? In Quantico, Maryland. Please allow me to add to the stories of dogs eating things they shouldn't. Some years ago, we had a rescue dog, a very handsome, intelligent, lovable dog we named Drake. One year for my birthday, my mom 
made me something she'd never made for me before, a delicious rum cake. I believe I had maybe two slices before needing to go to the store one day. Having returned, I found smears and sticky residue on the kitchen floor, <laughs> along with some plastic wrap and a bleary-eyed dog who sat at an angle, swaying slightly. Not a crumb in sight. I swear he was smiling. My mother, hearing the story, laughed quite a bit, but also surprised me with another cake. Another rum cake, in fact. This time, I didn't get a chance to have even a single slice before I had to run out the door, but not before pushing the cake as far back into the corner of the kitchen counter as was possible. Upon my return, sure enough, no cake. <laughs> Only evidence of canine debauchery, including Drake sleeping peacefully on the floor. This would be ridiculous enough if it weren't for the fact that he never did this otherwise. Love that Only rum. those two times, and we had him for many wonderful years. Wow. I can only guess his previous owner was a lush, or perhaps Drake lived a previous life as a pirate. <laughs> One more. Glenn Winters, the official opera composer of the Tony Kornheiser Show from Newport News, Virginia. Heard you mention how miserable your dog was after eating brownie mix and walnuts. This reminded me of a low point in the career of my dog, Agatha. In the 1990s, I remember it as the day my dog ate a mixing bowl. I was making a batch of oatmeal cookies with a big glob of cookie dough in a Pyrex bowl. I decided the cookies would be enhanced by some butterscotch chips, so I drove one mile. You didn't have to do that. To the grocery store, leaving the bowl on the kitchen table. I was back in no more than 10 minutes. I was greeted by the following tableau. The Pyrex bowl was on the floor, shattered into pieces. There was a greasy smear on the floor, but no cookie dough. Agatha, a small red gold Sheltie mix, was lying in her basket next to the fridge with an expression that said, I'm a bad dog and I want to die now. Please kill me dead. I examined the shards of glass on the floor, realized with horror that they added up to no more than two-thirds of the bowl. Oh. Clearly, smaller pieces of the Pyrex had been covered with dough, and Agatha and her oh, frenzy no. greed just bolted them down. I called the vet, outlining what had happened. He said there was no use in bringing her in because either the broken glass coated with dough would pass through her harmlessly, or she would die in agony before I could get out of the hospital. The dog lived another 10 years. Oh. Happy holidays. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white.
I wouldn't have it any other way 
my wits in And I'm never alone, no, not at all We're there to catch each other's fall She calls me out when I need it Reminds me of who I say I am She got my back forever as I evolve Into a better man She come to me and it's like I could fly Tell you why She come to me at the end of the day 